0: that you as a congregation have been a tremendous blessing to us as a family. Through the last two weeks, you've truly been the hands and feet of Jesus. Phone calls, text messages, food, visits, so many things that have reminded us again and again of God's faithfulness. And yes, it's been a week of up and downs and some, some difficult things to walk through. I was reminded time and again how God knows exactly what we need when we need it. And uh, I have an elderly elderly aunt, not elderly, an older aunt. Wednesday was kind of a hard day for me, I'll just be honest. And uh, it was Wednesday at lunchtime. I was particularly burdened. And I got a text from this aunt saying, Robert, I'm praying for you. I hardly knew she knew how to text, but... God knew exactly what I needed at that time, and I uh, just want to thank the Lord for him using his people to meet our needs when we needed it. Second thing I want to say, and this has been mentioned several times, but I just want to praise the Lord for the way he's delivered the Haitian captives. We need to thank God and praise him, because that's a, a miracle that, he is, that has happened right now, and... Um, I know we don't know all the details, but we did learn a few more details this morning. And God was working in a miraculous way for those people to be released. So let's just praise the Lord for that. I invite you to turn to Matthew chapter 5. I'd like to read the first 12 verses this morning. Matthew chapter 5. For great is your reward in heaven, for so persecuted they the prophets which were before you. Let's bow our heads and pray. Our Heavenly Father, we come before you just now. We want to commit this service to you. Lord, we thank you for your word. We pray now that you would just open it to us. We pray that you would give us understanding. I just pray that you would um, help us to be in tune with your spirit. I commit my words to you, just use my voice for your honor and glory, I pray in Jesus' name, amen. Well, this is the beginning of the Sermon on the Mount, a very familiar passage that we've probably memorized in school. And if we look back a little bit into chapter 4, we see that Jesus came and his first message to the people was, repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. And then a little bit later, in verse 23, it says that Jesus went about all Galilee teaching in their synagogues and preaching the gospel of the kingdom. So right at the beginning, he's talking about the kingdom, the kingdom of God. And I wonder what went through the people's minds when he started talking about the kingdom of God. We talked about this a little bit in our Sunday school class the people in the old testament were looking for deliverance they were longing for something to get them out from underneath the roman rule and we don't know exactly what came to their minds when jesus started talking about the kingdom of god but i think they were excited this sounded good jesus talking about the kingdom of god a new kingdom that sounded good to them and I don't know, we're maybe judging motives there, but it does say that the people came. There were multitudes. People started coming to hear what Jesus had to say. And that brings us to chapter 5 where it says, And seeing the multitudes, seeing the masses of people come, he went up into the mountain and sat down and taught them. Now when we look into these... Um, I want to focus mainly on the Beatitudes this morning. And I believe these are foundational attitudes for those who are part of God's kingdom, part of the kingdom of God. Um, and they deal with both our relationship with God and with our fellow man. Some of these or maybe more specifically about relationship with God and others, some with others. But we're gathered here this morning as part of the kingdom of god if you're a believer you belong to the kingdom of god and so as we look through these attitudes or these beatitudes i want to challenge you i want to challenge me to see how well does my attitude line up with what jesus jesus is teaching here and i think as we go through these we will see how counter they are to our natural way of thinking I want to focus mainly on the first part of the Beatitudes, not so much on the end parts. You know, there, there's kind of these two parts to these things. Blessed are ye if you do this, for, for here's the reward. And I'm going to focus mainly on the, the first part. And primarily, it's because I don't understand some of what these rewards are. What does it mean to be inherit the earth? I'm not sure. Um, so I'm going to let that to, to other people to explain and just focus in on more of the attitudes at the beginning. Also before we begin, I want to look a little bit at the word blessed. The Strong's definition is supremely blessed, by extension fortunate, well-off, blessed, or happy. Now some translations use the word happy here. Happy are the poor in spirit, and happy are the mo- they that mourn. And I don't think that quite is a strong enough word. It's deeper than something that just makes you happy. Happiness is a feeling, or at least the way we use it now. It's more um, something that's fickle. We're happy one minute, we're sad the next. But the word here is blessed or blessed. It's something deeper. It's something divine. It's something where, where it's the place where God Where you want to be with God. Where God is blessing your life. Where God's smile can be upon you. Let's look at verse 3. Verse 3 says, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Well, what does it mean to be poor in spirit? Well, I believe that Primarily, this is a person who knows their need of God. They are—they recognize their spiritual poverty. They're broken in spirit about it. They need help, and they know it. That's a person who is poor in spirit. They don't have it all together. There's needs in their lives, deep needs. Now, the good news is, is that when we are in the position of recognizing, truly recognizing our need. That is the very place where God can actually help us. We need to be poor in spirit. We need to feel our need of God. Second, in 2 Second Corinthians 12, Paul found himself in a place of need. And when we think about Paul, we, he's one of those spiritual giants. He had... So many gifts. He had the gift of tongues, the gift of prophecy, the gift of, uh, I'm not sure what all his gifts. But the Bible says that lest he would be exalted above ma- measure, uh, a thorn in the flesh was given him, a messenger of Satan to buffet him. Now, we wonder, what it—what was it? We don't know. But it's, it was something... The word buffet means kind of to beat up. There was something in his life that kind of beat him up. And I think it kept him poor in spirit. It kept him realizing his need of God. And one, the other thing we know about it was Paul wanted rid of it. He wanted to get rid of this thorn in the flesh. He didn't like it. It was dragging him down. And he pled with the Lord three times to remove this thorn in the flesh from him. But God didn't take it away from him. God didn't remove it. And I don't, we don't know all the reasons, but I think probably the main reason was that God wanted that certain thing in his life to keep Paul dependent on him. He needed Paul to stay humble before him. But he, Paul, the Lord gave Paul some beautiful words in 2 Corinthians 12, 9 and 10, "My grace is sufficient for thee, for my strength is made perfect in weakness. Most gladly, therefore, I will rather glory in my infirmities that the power of Christ may rest upon me. Therefore, I take pleasure in infirmities and in reproaches and necessities and persecutions and distresses for Christ's sake, for when I am weak. Then am I am strong. Blessed, Jesus said, are the poor in spirit. Verse 4 says, Blessed are they that mourn, for they shall be comforted. Now when we think about mourning, or someone who mourns, we think about it typically as someone who has experienced loss. They've had something, and then it was gone. And the Bible doesn't say what kind of loss he's talking about here. Was it spiritual loss or emotional loss or physical loss? It doesn't say. It just says, blessed are those who mourn. And I don't know, uh, I'm guessing that probably all of you have lost something in your life or have, you know, maybe a loved one, maybe a financial loss, you name it. But if you do, you know what it's like to mourn. And I think if we're honest, that doesn't feel like a very blessed state to be in. It feels kind of, it can leave us really sad and empty and asking a lot of questions, why God? Why why did you take this out of my life? Why am I experiencing this loss? But I'd like to challenge you and I'd like to challenge myself when we experience loss in our lives, simply offer that back to God. We don't understand it all, but Heath Lambert said, in God's economy, loss is no loss. Now you have to think about that a little bit, but in God's economy, loss is no loss. In other words, God can take the losses we experience and give us something far greater. And I believe the things that we gain when we experience loss are far greater than the things that we lose. Now, ultimately, when it talks about mourning here, I believe it's mourning the awareness of our sin and our neediness before God. When we truly recognize our sinful condition before God, it causes us to mourn. I invite you to turn to 2 Corinthians 7. The Corinthians were not perfect people. They had some things in their life that needed to be dealt with. So in that way we can relate to them because we know we're not perfect people. There's things that we deal with. And Paul had written them a letter and he must have been a little sharp with them, we don't know. Um, but this is, this is uh, his Paul writing about that experience. Starting uh, 2 Corinthians 7, verse, starting in verse six. Nevertheless, God that comforted those that are cast down, comforted us by the coming of Titus. And not by his coming only, but by the consolation wherewith he was comforted in you when he told us of your earnest desire, your mourning, your fervent mind towards me, so that, I, so that I rejoice the more. For though I made you sorry with a letter, I do not repent, though I did repent. For I perceive that the same epistle hath made you sorry, though it were but for a season. But now I rejoice, not that you were made sorrow. Sorry, But that ye sorrowed to repentance, for ye were made sorry after a godly manner, that ye might receive damage by us in nothing. For godly sorrow worketh repentance to salvation, not to be repented of, but the sorrow of the world worketh death. For behold, this selfsame thing, that ye sorrowed after a godly sort, what carefulness it wrought in you. Yea, what clearing of yourselves. Yea, what indignation. Yea, what fear. What, Yea, what vehement desire. Yea, what zeal. Yea, what revenge. In all things, ye have approved yourselves to be clear in this matter. They mourned their sin. Blessed, Jesus said, are those that mourn. Back to... Matthew chapter 5 verse 5 says blessed are the meek for they shall inherit the earth Now meekness is often considered a weakness You know a dish rag just something you wring out and toss away or a doormat that you walk over It's it's just down there but biblical meekness is not weakness. In fact, it's a great strength. And it's something that we need to develop in our lives. Now, some translations use the word gentle here. Blessed are the gentle. The Amplified Bible says that it's a kind hearted person, a sweet spirited, or self controlled. Another definition I found is that it's someone. Who is able to remain calm and subdued even when they're being provoked? This is a person who has complete control of their spirit. Now I, there's no way we can do that apart from God's grace, but I believe this is something we need to develop. This is one of those attitudes we need that relate to how we relate, that, that relates to how we relate to others. Well, you know, poor in spirit talks about our humility with God. Meekness deals with our humility in relationships with others. Meekness is vitally important in having healthy relationships with each other in the church. It's about being humble. It's about being teachable. Philippians 2.3 says, Let nothing be done through strife or vainglory, but in lowliness of mind let each esteem other better than themselves. Blessed, Jesus said, are the meek. Verse 6, blessed are they which do hunger and thirst after righteousness, for they shall be filled. The word that comes to my mind when I hear this verse is, is appetite. And how do you explain your appetite? It's definitely not something we can see, but we all know what it is, right? When you don't eat for a while, you're hungry. When you don't drink for a while, you're thirsty. It's not really something you can put your finger on necessarily, but it's a deep longing, a deep desire for something. I believe we can have both good appetites and we can have bad appetites. But the thing we're talking about here is a good appetite, a deep longing, a deep urgent desire to be in a right relationship with God. It is hungering and thirsting after righteousness. Now, the problem we face here in this world is that Satan will offer us a million and one things to curb our appetite for for righteousness. Maybe there's a little candy of sin here or a little cookie of worldliness there. And suddenly we're not so hungry for the things of God. We need to be aware of what we are nibbling on. Am I hungry and thirsty for righteousness? David was a man who, I believe, truly knew what it was like to hunger and thirst after God. He said in Psalms 63:1, "O oh God, thou art my God, early will I seek thee, My soul thirsteth for thee. My flesh longeth for thee in a dry and thirsty land where no water is. May the Lord give us deeper and more, a deeper appetite for righteousness and show us the things that are curbing our appetites for the things of God. We need to be aware, but blessed, Jesus said, are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. Verse 7 says, Blessed are the merciful, for they shall obtain mercy. I'd like to think a little bit about the story of the Good Samaritan and talking about this being merciful. It's a familiar story, Jesus told, about a man who was walking down from Jerusalem to Jericho. And he was just going about his life, and suddenly he was attacked by a band of robbers. They beat him up and left him bleeding and dying beside the road. Terrible predicament to be in. Well, good news, there was a priest came by. The perfect person, right? Well, it wasn't that the the priest just missed him. He didn't happen to just be looking the other way. He saw him. But it says he walked by. I think it even says he walked by on the other side. And more good news, there was a Levite came by. And he saw him too. He saw him. But he walked by on the other side too. Then there was a Samaritan came by, and he saw him too. And he got off, and he did something about him. Now, I don't have any doubt that if we were drive down the road here and we saw a man out in the ditch, bleeding and dying, we'd do something, right? We'd, do, we'd stop. We'd help the poor man. We wouldn't be like these priests and Levite, but what do we do when the chief thief gets a hold of a person and beats him up and leaves him bleeding and dying? How do we respond when someone falls in sin? Are we merciful? Do we have time to work with that person, care for them? It may cost us. It may cost us time. And money. But are we merciful? Blessed, Jesus said, are the merciful. Verse 8 says, Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. I believe this is a man who has a clean and clear heart before God. It's one with integrity, it's one with moral courage and a godly character. And really, we have to be honest, the only way we can be pure in heart is through the blood of Jesus. There is no other way that we can have a pure heart before God than to be washed in the blood of Jesus. We need his cleansing to be pure in heart. But I think there are, we do have a role to play and keeping a pure heart. If we're going to eat the garbage of the world, you're not going to maintain a pure heart. We have to. We have a part to play. Second Timothy two twenty two, Paul's talking to his spiritual son Timothy, and he gives him in some instruction. He said, "Flee also youthful lust, but follow righteousness, faith, charity, peace. With them." that call on the Lord out of a pure heart. You see, Timothy had to do something here. He had to flee youthful lust. He had to follow after righteousness, faith, charity, and peace. He had a work to do in keeping his heart pure. Now, talking about a pure heart, I'm maybe changing here just a little bit, but I believe this also talks about Pure motives. Having a pure heart talks about pure motives. Why we do the things we do. And I think if we're honest, we all struggle with this at some level. We know what's right to be done, to be did, but do we do it out of the right motive? And I I think that this is an area that we need continual sanctification in, where God is cleansing our hearts and why we do what we do. But Jesus said, blessed, blessed are the poor in heart. Verse 9 says, blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called the children of God. Well, what is a peacemaker? I thought maybe I would go to my power Bible and find the Greek word and look at all the other places where peacemakers used in the New Testament, and that would give me an idea well, that was the only place it was used, just one time. And so I didn't get much help there. But I think we know what the opposite of a peacemaker is. It's a troublemaker, someone who stirs up strife. And I'd like to look at a story in 1 Samuel 25. I don't know if you want to turn to it or not. You don't necessarily need to. But in that passage, we find both a troublemaker and a peacemaker. A peacemaker. Now, the setting was David was out in the wilderness with his 600 men. He he was not king at this point. He was going to be king, but things were all still uh, up in the air. And David and his men kept, um, or there was a man in that area, a rich man. His name was Nabal. And he had three thousand sheep and a thousand goats, which is way more than I would ever want to have. I don't, I'm not a fan of sheep or goats, but um, he he was keeping these, or, or David's men were kind of being a wall to these men. They were protecting them, and so Nabal and his men were shearing sheep, and they. I don't know what all the, the custom was at the time, but it must have been kind of a time of festivity where there was a lot of food. They were maybe sac- or, uh, eating some of these sheep. and So David sent 10 young men to go to Nabal and ask him for some, some food. And when they came to Nabal, um, oh, one thing I forgot to tell you about Nabal. The Bible says he was a churlish man. Who knows what churlish means? Anybody? Churlish? Well, I didn't know what churlish meant either. But it means ill-tempered or badly behaved. I don't think that the term troublemaker is too far off from that. He wasn't a good man. And so when David's men came to um, Nabal, he turned them away and sent them on their way with contempt. He just... Act like David was a nobody. And when David's men came back, it made David hot under the collar. He, he got really upset. And he decided he was going to destroy Nabal and all his men. He was going to take care of this. So David said, strap on your swords, men. We're going after this guy. took 400 men, left 200 by the stuff, and took off. Well, in the meantime, someone told Abigail, Nabal's wife, about what was happening. And the Bible says she was a beautiful and a discerning woman. And she jumped right to it. She got busy. She made a bunch of food or got a bunch of food together. And she uh, put it on donkeys and took off. And she met David before he got to Nabal. And she gave him all this food. She said, let this sin be upon me. And because of that, David changed his mind. David relented of what he was planning to do. And David, um, David told Abigail, he said, blessed are you because what, of what you've done. You have reached out at a time. And because of what Abigail did, David did not have that blood stain on his hands. And I think Abigail is just a powerful example of a peacemaker. There was trouble brewing, and here she took this opportunity to be a peacemaker. So, my challenge is, are you a churlish man? (laughs) Are you a troublemaker? Or are you a peacemaker like Abigail? Blessed, Jesus said, are the peacemakers. Verse 10 through 12, I've chosen to put these together. Blessed are they which are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are ye when men shall revile you and persecute you and say all manner of evil against you falsely for my sake. Rejoice and be exceeding glad, for great is your reward in heaven. For so persecuted they the prophets which were before you. Blessed are those who are persecuted. That sounds strange to our soft American ears, doesn't it? Blessed are those who are persecuted. But how do we, but the fact of the matter is that Jesus said it, right? Blessed are those who are persecuted. So I, we're talking about attitudes here this morning. So what is our attitude towards persecution? You know, in reality, I think if I took a poll, we all believe that persecution is probably coming to us in some form or another. And today, we're one day closer than we were yesterday. We're one week closer than we were last week. What is our attitude towards that persecution that may be coming our way? Are we willing to accept it? Would we even be able... To rejoice in it? Those are challenging questions because I think somewhere down deep inside of us we have a sense of maybe dread or feeling that persecution if it came on the church would be terrible and yes it is terrible but would it be okay to say that it would be good for us? Is that okay to say? It would be good for us? That's a little bit hard for me to say, and I say it carefully. But Jesus said here, blessed, blessed are those who are persecuted. Now, in closing, I focus mainly on the attitudes that are hallmarks of kingdom people. And I didn't really talk about the rewards, as I mentioned at the beginning. But there are real and genuine rewards for those who take these attitudes on themselves, who take these heart positions as they relate to God and to others. When we follow these, we will be blessed. We will be rewarded. So truly, we will be blessed when we are poor in spirit, when we mourn. When we are meek, when we are hungry and thirsty for righteousness, when we are merciful, when we are peacemakers, and yes, we are blessed even when we are persecuted. May God help us to examine our lives by these attitudes. Lord bless you.